You're listening to the CFP Podcast with your host, Chappie, the college football writer, the source for your college football fix with picks, clicks, and conversions over kicks. Now, here's your host, Chappie. What's up, college football fans? I see you out there. Well, I don't really see you. I see you in my heart. I see you in my head. I imagine all the wonderful listeners that we've got out there who are tuning in because they want to hear the good stuff. And you've come to the right place. Yes, this is the CFP Podcast, your college football place for picks, previews, posts, a plethora of college football knowledge, points of adrenaline, stuff that's going to get us excited, even more excited than we already are as we gear up. Less than 80 days to go until week zero kickoff, August 28th. Four games on the schedule. Looking forward to it. And because you enjoy this stuff and you have friends, you got people that you share commonalities with, I'm willing to bet one of those things in common is this great game of college football. So do them a favor, do me a favor, forward this podcast on, whether it's by Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, word of mouth, whatever works for you. We need more unity in this world, and what better medium to bring it all together to put smiles on people's faces than to share this passion of college football that you're hearing right now, that we're talking about, and that we engage with on Twitter, and I appreciate that interaction. You can share it from your audio platform, whether it's Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, wherever it is, or simply go to Twitter and retweet the link that I'm going to post. You can find me, if you're not already there, on Twitter, at champion underscore lit. Again, that's champion underscore L-I-T. And so, real quick, we've started doing this in the last couple episodes. We're going to start with a segment called Play Callers, where I take questions from college football fans like yourself. And so we're going to start with our friend Tess, who is a frequent listener to the podcast, a frequent writer on Twitter. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But it's always good content, and it's great talking with you, Tess. Tess is at T-O-O-S-M. And Tess asks, will Champions Week continue? I hope it's the norm. So quick answer to that, Tess, is I certainly hope so. I think that this was one of the biggest highlights from this COVID season in 2020. And that was, you know, really with the Big Ten, what they did or what they tried to do is in addition to Ohio State, the champion from the East, and the Northwestern Wildcats, the champ from the Big Ten West, they also paired together teams from the East and from the West almost in a fashion that kind of pits two versus two, three versus three, and they tried to do it as best they could with with scheduling as it would allow. And I think that this worked out well, and I really enjoy this model, and I think it should pervade throughout college football have it in at least all the Power 5 conferences. So can you imagine having the number two team from the SEC East taking on the number two team from the SEC West? Imagine if we saw a rematch of Florida and Texas A&M from last year. Imagine in the Pac-12, assuming that everybody was healthy, imagine if we got Oregon from the North versus UCLA from from the South or Utah from the South or Arizona State from the South. I think that that's a good recipe, and I think it also not only gives college football fans quality entertainment, 
but it also kind of helps weed out, you know, the pretenders from those who truly deserve to be in the New Year's Six or who truly deserve to be in consideration for a playoff spot. Because sometimes those two versus two can go a long way in shaping who might deserve to be in a playoff format of four or six or eight or 12, because we know that that's been the big topic this week is playoff expansion. And that's another segment for another time. My quick thoughts on that. I think that six teams with two buys and conference tie-ins for at least four of the five power five schools and maybe a group of five school or Notre Dame providing that they have a a 10 or 11 win season or better, whether you want to do it by a total number of wins, or I think it might be better to do a winning percentage. So maybe you say a team has to have an 850 winning percentage for that season or higher, which almost necessitates an 11 win season out of 12 games or out of 13, whatever it might be. Those are just my initial thoughts on that. But I think Champions Week is a great idea. It gives us another round of quality matchups that really the schools don't have much control over because it forces teams who are traditionally successful to play other schools that are traditionally successful. And it gets away from us seeing an SEC number two or three take on a team from the FCS level or take on a team, no offense, but from Conference USA or Sunbelt. And I'm not talking the the rise in Sunbelt competition that we see from Coastal Carolina, Louisiana, App State. I'm talking scheduling a team like Louisiana Monroe, who got a boost in coaching this year with the addition of Terry Bowden and Rich Rodriguez. But let's face it, the Warhawks are not exactly scaring anybody into submission, nor did Terry Bowden's old school, the Akron Zips. Let's see what Tom Arth can do out there in in Rubber City, USA. Our next question comes from at Sidelines Ball State, and this is a recent one. So I put out in response to CFB Blitz on Twitter, they asked, who's your top five in the MAC? And so I listed my top five, and missing from that top five were the Ball State Cardinals, the champion from the Mid-American Conference in 2020. So Sidelines Ball State asks, Why do you not have Ball State on your top five? They're defending champs, and they bring nearly everyone back. And here's my answer that I gave to them. The MAC, one through six or one through seven even, is so thin and so tight that you could interchange really any of those schools. So I think you've got Toledo and Western Michigan going into 2021 at the top there at one and two. Then I put Miami of Ohio. Yes, the Red Hawks. They were only two and one last year because they could only play three games. And they were the defending MAC champs from 2019. And I think given a full season, you were looking at a Red Hawk team that was going to challenge and and create some problems for opposing MAC schools. They bring back Gabbert at quarterback. Jalen Bester comes back at running back after having to sit out with injury last year. Jack Sorensen is a very talented wide receiver. On the defensive side, Ryan McWood, Sterling Weatherford, Robinson, and Butler at defensive ends. I think Miami is going to be a team, not to mention they have one of the top coaching staffs and have been one of the top recruiters in the MAC for the last four years. So don't count out the Red Hawks. Behind them, I have the Ohio Bobcats, again, because of coaching, because of what they bring back. Demontre Tuggle is a big return at running back. 
Curtis Rourke, who is the younger brother of Nathan Rourke at quarterback. I think that he showed some promise last season. I think that this Ohio team is always going to compete under Frank Solich. And then at number five, I had Kent State because I really like the amount of points and the amount of offense that can threaten any opponent coming from Sean Lewis and that flash-fast offense. But Ball State, I think, is an equal number five, maybe even an equal number four or number three to Miami and Ohio, who we already mentioned. I think that Eastern Michigan is a team that you should not sleep on from the West. I think that Chris Creighton, this might be the year that they could Ball State themselves and and move up in the MAC West. So keep an eye out for them. So again, at sidelines, Ball State. Is Ball State a candidate to repeat as MAC champs? Absolutely. But what we've seen, especially from the Western side of the conference, is parity. Not since Northern Illinois from 2010 to 2015 has there been a repeat MAC West champ since 2016. It's very difficult to repeat. And yes, they bring back a lot of talent from last year's team, but now they're the hunted. There's a lot of teams, especially Toledo and Western Michigan, who are very sore from losing against Ball State last year, games that they were not expected to lose. And I think that Jason Candle and his Toledo Rockets team are going to be the force to reckon with in the MAC this year. So that's why I don't have them in the top five. Could I be wrong? Absolutely. I might be eating crow come November, and I openly invite all Ball State Cardinal fans to throw it in my face and to laugh at me and to say ha-ha, and I will cheers you, and I will toast to you for a repeat Mac West championship if it happens, but I'm not calling it just yet. And then our third question really comes from a variety of people, but I'm going to give credit to at Jeffrey the Greek, who is one of the fantastic hosts on the Eyes on Big Podcast, who he hosts with at Big Kurt or B1G Kurt. So those of you, many of you who are listening to this right now are most likely fans of the Eyes on Big Podcast. They are a Big Ten specific podcast, and boy, do they love their teams from this area of the country. But Jeffrey the Greek and others ask, why is Indiana so low? So I put out my response to the DraftKings over-under win totals for the Big Ten East and West this year. I put it out last weekend. And they set Indiana's win total at eight wins. And I put it under. And I'm going to say that they're probably going to be two, maybe three games under that. So, yes, I'm calling for a six, maybe even a five-win season for the Indiana Hoosiers. So people from Indiana, people who are on the Hoosier bandwagon, or people who have been Hoosier fans their whole life, are probably screaming right now saying, dude, you got to be on crack. Whatever you're smoking, whatever you're drinking, I don't want to go anywhere near that because that has messed you up in the head. Well, I don't smoke, never have, never will. I do engage in an occasional bourbon or two, and maybe I've got one going right now, but it's for pure enjoyment. It's not to inebriate myself. But my thought on Indiana is they were a very good story last year, but let's look at it. They had six wins last year, and only one of those six wins came against a team that had a winning record, and that was Wisconsin, who ended up 4-3 and three and really needed a bowl victory against Wake Forest, a game that Wake Forest essentially handed to the Badgers by terrible play from one of my favorites, Sam Hartman, who threw five interceptions in that game after I think only throwing one or two all season long. And keep in mind, Wake Forest played almost a full schedule, a full ACC schedule last year. So 
Indiana's wins came against teams that had losing records. They beat a down Penn State team. They beat a down Michigan team. A Michigan team who would have finished dead last in the Big Ten East last year had they actually played against Ohio State. So they finished at, I think, 2-4. and four. They would have finished 2-5 and five had they played the Buckeyes in Columbus, but COVID or whatever they want to believe was the culprit for that non-contest that caused them to edge the Michigan State Spartans by a half game, but Michigan State beat Michigan head-to-head. So Spartan fans, you can claim victory and you can claim a higher spot in the standings because of the fact that you would have had an identical record to the Wolverines and you would have beat them head-to-head. But getting back to the Hoosiers, a lot of their success this year or a lot of maybe the blame to why they won't get to eight wins or higher this season is going to be on Michael Penix. So in three seasons in Bloomington, he has not played a full season. And I'm not holding that against the young man. Injuries happen, but obviously we're seeing a trend. If it's one year, okay. If it's two years and it's maybe a game or two, I wouldn't hold that in such heavy context. But because of the fact that it's been three years and it's been serious injuries, injuries that have been debilitating and taking him out for the remainder of the season, I do hold that against Penix and the Indiana success this year. Now, Jack Tuttle is a viable backup, but he is a totally different quarterback from what they want to do in that offense. They bring back Samson James as their running back this year, but Stevie Scott is gone. Scott was really the bell cow at running back, and James has not really shown his star merit that he earned coming into Bloomington after ditching the Ohio State Buckeyes and taking his high four-star, low five-star talent into Bloomington. So... They did get a lot of help in the transfer portal, and a lot of people point to their defense returning nine starters and getting transfers like Weston Kramer from Northern Illinois and Ryder Anderson from Ole Miss, but they're bringing in a new defensive coordinator who was the defensive backs coach at Georgia. Now, that's a hell of a place to be coming from under the tutelage of Kirby Smart, who was under the tutelage of Nick Saban. So you have to believe that new defensive coordinator Charlton Warren has a lot of expertise, but it's his first year calling the defense. And Indiana is certainly going to be one of the hunted. You can bet that trips to Penn State and Ann Arbor are not going to be very friendly. And those schools, those coaches in particular, are circling that game to say, there is no way we should have lost this because... Historically, Indiana has been beaten and beaten bad by those two schools, and now they have to go in their backyards and try and repeat. And from a school that has not fared well or not fared at the top of the Big Ten Conference, it's going to be a, a monumental challenge for the Hoosiers. Oh, and they also have to play Cincinnati out of conference. Now, they get them in Memorial Stadium in Bloomington in front of Hep's Rock, but that's a Cincinnati team that could very well run the table, and they've got a solid coaching staff led by Luke Fickle and Mike Denbrock as the offensive coordinator, and the new defensive coordinator, Mike Tressel, who has been at Michigan State and is familiar with the Hoosiers. So it's not going to be an easy task, and that's a game that initially I'm calling for the Bearcats to win on the road in Bloomington. So it's a tough schedule, and they also draw Minnesota out of the West and Purdue, which is their their typical rival. And that's going to be a game that 
Jeff Brown might need to win to save his job. And it's a rivalry game, so you can throw all that out the window. Indiana has had the Boilermakers number in recent years. So that's going to be a game that if Purdue players and Purdue coaches are going to circle one game that they've got to get this year, it's got to be for the old Oaken Bucket. So to answer people's questions, why do I have Indiana so low? It's because of all those things kind of stacking against them. Now, I will be the first to crown them here and turning the page and in the mix of Big Ten success if they can get to eight wins this year. I think getting to eight wins will be a huge, huge success for the Hoosiers. And Tom Allen is doing great things there. I'm not knocking him. I'm not knocking that program. I just don't know that this is the year that they will repeat. I don't think Indiana is a one-hit wonder, but I also don't see them being that Wisconsin of the 90s or Purdue of the 2000s where they win consistently and they are continually near the top of the conference as a common threat. They're going to be there, but this is not that year. I think that the the East, Penn State will be back, Michigan will be back, and Rutgers is no pushover anymore. And I'm not going to give it to Loxley and the Maryland Terrapins just yet either, but they're certainly not the slouch that they were when he first got here but that's another story because Loxley certainly has a lot to prove, probably the most to prove in the entire Big Ten Conference. Now, you can find a wealth of data and insight and predictions and previews, more of what I just gave you, which includes my current great 28, my post-spring look at the rankings and who looks to be the top 28 teams in college football as we enter the summer. In addition to releasing conference previews, all conference teams, a menagerie of minutiae, all the stuff that you're looking for that, yes, you can get in the printed publications, but the beauty of the web is things can be fluid, and I keep up with transfer portal additions and subtractions. I keep up with the recent news, which obviously in print media, it's locked in. And if you want up to the date, find us online at www.cfpcollegefootball.com. And check it out for things like who's coming back, who's coming in, the schedules for all 130 teams in FBS, informational links, episodes that you can go back and revisit from this podcast. And we encourage you, again, to hit us up on Twitter and tell us what you think. I'm at champion underscore lit. And the website to go to to get the information you want is cfpcollegefootball.com. So we're going to talk two new athletic directors within the Big Ten Conference. And first we go out to Madison, Wisconsin, where new athletic director Chris McIntosh is going to succeed his former coach and recent boss, Barry Alvarez. Alvarez is officially stepping down effective in July, though most Big Ten followers and most college football people know that he's going to keep his pulse on the Cardinal in white. He's not going away. He's just officially stepping down as the head guy in charge of that athletic department. Now, McIntosh has worked in the Wisconsin Athletic Department since 2014 and has been a deputy athletic director since 2017. And again, he's a former player under Barry Alvarez, so he knows what Wisconsin culture is. He knows what it takes to be successful, not just in the football program, but in a lot of the other successes that they have within Wisconsin athletics out there in Madison. Now, just about a month after newly hired athletic director, Mike Poliski stepped down after being named in a lawsuit unbecoming of a person in that position. Northwestern University hired Derek Gregg as its new superintendent of sports, its new athletic director. Now, Gregg was the 
athletic director at Tulsa and Eastern Michigan before coming to Northwestern this month. He, he also served as an administrator at prestigious institutions like Missouri and Michigan. And this past season, he was one of the executive directors on the National Collegiate Athletics Association, the NC2A. So he's got familiarity not only with athletic programs and institutions of higher learning like Northwestern is, but he's also had that year of experience working with the NCAA. So I think that that gives him a leg up. Now, he played football at Vanderbilt in the early 90s, so clearly he's familiar with territories that work effectively to use athletics as an extension of aggressive academics. So I think it's a good hire for Northwestern. I think that it's going to go a little bit of ways to smooth over the people who felt hurt and who felt betrayed by what happened under the previously named athletic director and and some of the administration. Now, look, full disclosure, I am a Northwestern guy. I didn't graduate from there, but I cover the team. I I have the utmost respect for what goes on in Evanston, Illinois. And one of the things that I've always respected about Northwestern is they are a progressive school. They are an institution that wants to do right. And when something was not done right in this most recent hiring, the people of that community spoke up and the right people voiced their opinions and not everybody was against the hiring of Poliski. And for all intents and purposes, I'm sure he's a great individual. And I certainly respect the beliefs and the opinions of those who felt that he was the right person at that time. But as more things start to surface, I think that as we move forward, it's very important to have proper representation And somebody, not because of the color of their skin, or not because of their gender, or not because of a squeaky clean resume, but because of what they can bring. And I certainly think that it's hard to argue that Derek Gregg does not bring a lot of good experience and does not have a fighting chance to continue to lead Northwestern in a positive direction. But he certainly has huge, huge shoes to fill as Jim Phillips leaves to be the commissioner of the ACC. And best of luck to Dr. Phillips. He will be sorely missed. And best of luck to Dr. Gregg, who steps in in that role at Northwestern University. Now, moving forward, in the SEC, Dan Mullen gets a three-year contract extension, which keeps him in Gainesville through the year 2026 and raises his annual salary to $7.6 million a year, putting him at third in the SEC behind Ed Orgeron of LSU and some knick-knack named Saban. Now, speaking of Saban, he also worked out a contract extension, and that's going to keep him at Bama through the year 2028, where he will be 77 years of age. So two years longer than Dan Mullen, and if they continue to meet in high-stakes games, they're meeting on the field in week four this season, and they met in the SEC championship last year, something tells me that they're going to bump into each other again, whether it be in the SEC championship or maybe in a postseason format that might get expanded. So will Mullen start to chip away at the old GOAT, or will Saban continue to give Florida fans a reason to say, when are we going to get back to where Spurrier was? Now, that's not knocking Dan Mullen. He's a hell of a coach, and he's doing great things there. But I don't think he's anywhere near the plane that Saban is at right now. I also don't know that he's on the level that Ed Orgeron is at with the success that he's had relative to his time there at LSU. 
Now, speaking of LSU, they are certainly not without their problems. And there have been some off-the-field things that have gone on in Baton Rouge. And that's a big question mark that a lot of people have as it relates to LSU's perceived success this season. Now, I'm one of those people that believes that the Tigers are going to do well this year. I'm calling for them to have double-digit wins, and we'll talk more about that when I release my SEC preview. But LSU recently, in the past week, had to fire two-year offensive line coach James Craig and is set to replace him with Brad Davis, who has been an offensive line coach at three different SEC schools in the last four seasons. So you got to wonder, why is he bounced around? Now, some of it's good, some of it may not be as good. And there was no direct reason given for Craig's dismissal as LSU's offensive line coach, but it does leave more questions about the current culture in Baton Rouge. So will Coach O get things together? Will the administration start putting things in the right order down there in Baton Rouge? Do they care about their image? Or is it more about wins? Is it more about what you bring in with recruits? Because some would argue that it's all about winning in the SEC. And public perception really doesn't mean a damn as long as you're churning out the money, as long as you're putting forth this this big brand, and you can deal with any sort of litigation. You can deal with things later on. Now, a bill has been introduced on the floors of Congress that aims to allow college athletes to be considered, quote, paid employees of the university and therefore allowed to unionize and collectively bargain for what they feel that they are owed. So as we enter the storm of name image likeness, this is going to be a big thing. And so it's already going to be set forth on July 1st, effective July 1st, that these college football players will be able to collect money on their name, on their image, on their likeness. And I think that that's okay. I think that it's good that they're given what they are owed as long as it does not open Pandora's box. So be careful of that. Be careful, members of Congress. Be careful, advocates of college athletes getting paid. Be careful what you wish for because look at what happens in professional sports with unions and with player rights. And I'm not saying that these college athletes don't have rights. They absolutely do. But what you want to avoid is holdouts and delayed starts. And you want to avoid potentials of strikes. You want to avoid poisoning the springs of beauty and purity that is college football. And I'm not sitting here saying that it is absolutely pure, but it is the best sport that we have out there. And I'm throwing it among All sports, professional, amateur, collegiate, college football is where it's at. In my opinion, and this has always been this way and always will be this way, hands down drudges and demolishes pro football. People will say that the NFL is king. I disagree. I find more people who are more fanatical and put more of their time and effort into blocking out time to watch college football or to watch replays of college football, to talk college football, than they do the NFL. And why is it? Because you've got pageantry, because you've got passion, because you've got athletes that are doing it for reasons more than just a feeling of entitlement. If you give any athlete a sense of entitlement or a sense of they are bigger than what they actually are in the grand scheme of things, that opens up major doors of trouble. So, these athletes are let's let's think about what they're already given. They're given a full ride scholarship. They don't have to pay a dime for their college education, which could turn into hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars later on. 
And I know that in some cases it might be chump change compared to what they can make as a professional athlete. But again, listen to what you just said, being paid millions as a professional athlete. So do they need that money now if they're going to be a professional athlete? No. I think this is more of an argument of people who the buck stops after their final year of eligibility in the NCAA. So they're given these full-ride scholarships. They're given housing. They're given stipends. They're given meals. They're given travel and health care. Numerous benefits. Oh, yeah. And the status symbols that they become by being a Division I college football player. Argue against it, if you will, but Division I college athletes, when they... When it's learned that they are a college football player for Alabama, for Michigan, for UCLA, for Cincinnati, they are given added special treatment. And it's not always bad treatment, but it is special treatment. It's treatment that I never got when I was attending a Division I college, Central Michigan University, Fire Up Chips. I wasn't granted anywhere near the benefits that they had. And I know that they put in a lot of work. And I know that their days are tough. If you would give me all of those things and said, all you have to do is go through the rigor of playing college football, I would absolutely do it. The good Lord did not bless me with the speed, the size, and and some of the other privileges that many of these athletes are born with or that they develop. And I, you know, again... To be a college football player, you have to work. I love that old saying that was made famous by many coaches. I think Bear Bryant was one who used it most. And that is, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And you can apply that to most college football players. I'm not saying that they don't work hard. And I'm not saying that they don't deserve these benefits. They absolutely do. But again, be very careful as to how much you are going to allow them to use this and entitle them, right? So they want more, and that's good. But again, be careful of opening Pandora's box. Now, speaking of this storm of name image likeness and navigating through the transfer portal tsunami, Twitter, our old friend Twitter, they've announced a new platform for college athletes to monetize their value with pre- and post-game video shorts, or in other words, little messages, almost like Cameo or like Many people do right now, but it's usually YouTubers and TikTokers and Twitter posts that come from people that nobody knows about or hasn't heard of before and maybe won't care about anymore. But people do care a lot about college football players, especially if you follow the sport and love the sport like we all do. So this is going to give them a chance to make some money by putting out a video and linking it to ads and sponsors that if I want to see what Ryan Holinsky has to say after a Northwestern victory, or if somebody wants to see what Ajay Hall, stud freshman wide receiver for the Alabama Crimson Tide, has to say after a victory down in Tuscaloosa, or if people want to hear what Desmond Ritter's ideas and what he's going through leading up to the week when they play UCF or leading up to the week that they go to South Bend and play the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, they now can get that. And Desmond Ritter and Ajay Hall and Ryan Helinski can make a little money off of that to help them out with their college expenses, with their life expenses. Now, this, of course, will be legalized once the NCAA allows players to capitalize on NIL, again, on that July 1st release date, But former players like Johnny Manziel, no surprise, have already been doing this and making a, quote, decent living under the table. 
And in a recent interview with Barstool Sports, Manziel admitted to making over 33000 in one year signing autographs after he won the Heisman in 2012. Now, of course, this is what's being reported. This is what's quote-unquote on the books or that we know about. We all know that, again, you go back, his, his name, his image, his likeness allowed him to get benefits that maybe couldn't be quantified monetarily, but you know that Johnny Manziel at that point and Johnny Manziel still, if he goes anywhere where there are Aggie fans, he's not going to have to pay for anything. He's going to get things essentially put in his lap, and and that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with the perks, the hidden perks that these NCAA athletes already are making. But it's nice to know that they can also make a little bit of coin from something like this. Just again, be careful. Now, this new allowance by the suits in Indianapolis does give the players a chance to make even more of a profit from their performance in addition to all these things that we talked about earlier, tuition, living, meals, healthcare, and other invaluable benefits. So it's a good thing. It's a step in the right direction. But again, let's not overstep our bounds. You know, Let's not try and reach for something up in the closet that's going to cause everything to fall down on top of us and leave a mess that we don't want to clean up. The last thing we want to get to in our news and notes portion of this podcast is the transfer portal. So June and July and maybe even parts of early August, but probably more so June and early July, we can expect a lot of significant movement in the transfer portal in terms of big-time names going to big-time programs or big-time names from big-time programs maybe going to a group of five school or a lower-tiered Power 5 school that gives that new destination more of a fighting chance as we head into the 2021 season. So the biggest news coming in the last week and a half was the Georgia Bulldogs. They signed Arik Gilbert, formerly of LSU, and for a hot cup of coffee from the Florida Gators, he is set to be a wide receiver. So he's listed on the Georgia roster as a wide receiver. Now he's going to be a more physical and a bigger wide receiver than many schools are used to playing, but that's because his skill set is more playing extended out wide, maybe in a slot, as opposed to a true tight end set. Also because of the fact that Georgia has some pretty good tight ends already on that roster with uh, Washington, with John Michael Fitzpatrick, and then also Brock Bowers, a five-star, very highly touted tight end coming in as a true freshman this year who was in for the spring and had a pretty good spring by most accounts. They also added, the the Bulldogs did, Darian Kendrick, a cornerback who was a five-star who played at Clemson, got into a little bit of a mess there, not really publicized as to what happened, but he essentially violated some team rules and caused Dabo Sweeney and the administration there to say, and by administration, I mean the coaching staff, to say, we're going to cut ties and we're going to let you go. So he ends up not too far from Clemson, South Carolina, going to Athens, Georgia, and really helps shore up that secondary for the Bulldogs that has gotten other help from the transfer portal, most notably cornerback and nickelback Tyke Smith from West Virginia. So good gets for the dogs. We also saw former Alabama running back slash slot guy, which... That was said to be more of his role if he stayed with the Tide this year. Robinson, a four-star, goes to the University of Texas and basically follows Steve Sarkeesian and joins another Robinson, B. John Robinson, who is my number two pick for the Heisman Trophy this year. Spencer Rattler gets my number one slot right now. But Keelan Robinson 
gives them certainly an athletic guy, somebody who's a good runner, who's you know more of a slasher, but strong enough and sturdy enough, athletic enough from that running back position. He joins not only B. John Robinson, but Jordan Whittington. Other talents that they've got there in the backfield still set to be said as to where Sanders will play. Their top recruit, who was an athlete coming in for the Texas Longhorns this year, don't know if he's going to play at receiver, at running back, if he's going to be on the defensive side as a, uh, a rush end, an outside linebacker, a strong safety type. But Keelan Robinson, certainly a help for the Texas Longhorns. Now, staying in the great state of Texas and moving out west a little bit to Lubbock, Texas, Kalen Geiger comes over from Troy. Now, Geiger led the Trojans in receiving in 2019 and 2020. He was an all-Sun Belt receiver this year, brings a good amount of experience, and fits right into that Matt Wells system. And he's going to need to help out that offense because Wells is said to be in kind of that hot seat, in air quotes, season this year for the Red Raiders. Wells is going to need to have his Texas Tech team perform a little bit more than what they have in the win total in the in his first few seasons there out in Lubbock, and Geiger is certainly a step in the right direction. We've got Caleb Ford DeMent leaving Old Dominion, and originally he had put himself in the portal and signed with UCLA, then took himself back out. Now he's destined for Washington State, so still going out west, but more northwest to Pullman, Washington, and staying in the Pac-12, and he's joining other defensive help that they've gotten out there in the Palouse with Ben Wilson, who comes up from TCU, and Chris Jackson, who comes over from Michigan State, so Nick Rolovich adding some key pieces to that defense that needs some help. And we know that they can score points, and we know that they're going to be an offensive system, but it's nice to see that the Cougars are adding defensive help on that side as well. There was a mass of players who are following Lance Leipold from Buffalo over to Lawrence, Kansas. Most notably, all-MAC center Mike Nowitzki, wide receiver Trevor Wilson, and all-MAC defensive tackle Eddie Wilson. Now, a question that I have is, Will Kevin Marks, who put himself in the transfer portal back in the winter and then decided to stay at Buffalo, but that was when Lance Leipold was still there. Marks is certainly going to be the feature back and could end up as the all-time leading rusher for the Buffalo Bulls if his season goes well enough and he gets more yardage than Jarrett Patterson racked up in approximately the same amount of time there. Or will he follow his offensive line and will he follow his head coach and his offensive coordinator and position coach who are all now in Lawrence, Kansas? So I'm going to be watching that closely. Buffalo has certainly lost a lot to the transfer portal, all going to the Jayhawks. And my question is, will they lose Kevin Marks, a quality running back, an all-MAC running back, and certainly somebody who could make a splash in the Big 12? Defensive end or Jack linebacker Kevon Bennett, formerly of Tennessee, goes to Arkansas State. Now, he's the son of Cornelius Bennett from the NFL's Buffalo Bills, and he joins Butch Jones. And I'm not sure, but Jones, of course, the former Tennessee head coach a handful of years ago. So I don't know if Jones had a hand in recruiting Bennett. I think the timeline overlaps there to where Jones certainly was on the radar of Bennett and likewise. So he goes over to Jonesboro, Arkansas, and gives the Red Wolves an added benefit on that defensive side. Looks to probably step in and play right away. A good pass rusher 
couple contributable seasons over in Knoxville, Tennessee. Brock Thompson, a wide receiver from Marshall, joins Jeff Brom and the Purdue Boilermakers. Now, Thompson gives them a pretty good receiver in the slot. He's not going to be a game changer, but certainly somebody who can rack up receptions and will be another weapon that Jack Plummer can throw to out there or Aiden O'Connell, who whichever one it's going to be, or do they go younger route at quarterback at Purdue? But Thompson is certainly a good threat to throw to. Now, Marshall also lost Artie Henry to the transfer portal, who ended up at the University of Virginia. So Marshall has seen the loss of a few players from last year's squad. And this was after new head coach Charles Huff from Alabama, who's known to be a very good players coach, a good recruiter, somebody that players who have played for him really do like. We're seeing some guys leave Marshall, most notably their All-American guard, Kane Madden, who is really the biggest name in this transfer portal. He goes to Notre Dame and fills in. So he joins Jarrett Patterson, really the lone holdover from that line last year. Kane Madden was an All-American at Marshall. Wouldn't surprise me to see him be an All-American type player, maybe third team or honorable mention All-American this year, maybe even first team. He's certainly a physical guy, guy who knows how to use his hands. He joins the Irish from the transfer portal. Again, another guy leaving Marshall. And then one last one, Trey Bradford leaves LSU and joins Oklahoma. Now, Oklahoma, we've talked about how they have riches in their quarterback room. There's, of course, Spencer Rattler and then Caleb Williams, their five-star quarterback. Then in the running back room, they've got Kennedy Brooks. They've got Marcus Major, who, by the way, I saw his name on the list of Heisman Trophy odds when he, right now, by most people's accounts, is the third running back on that roster because Eric Gray, a transfer from Tennessee, is going to kind of split carries or at least be the number two behind Kennedy Brooks. But now you've got Trey Bradford, who's a four-star, comes over from Baton Rouge, got a good future ahead of him. So a wealth of riches there, in addition to all the talent that they've got at wide receiver with Marvin Mims, Jaden Hazelwood, Theo Weiss, and the list goes on and on. Oh, by the way, they also have tight end Austin Stogner, who might be an All-American this year. So Lincoln Riley knows what he's doing, and he has a host of weapons to choose from in that arsenal. And then finally, guys who entered themselves in the portal and have not landed anywhere yet, Karan Prunty. So we talked about the Kansas Jayhawks. Well, shortly after the incoming staff gets settled there with Lance Leipold and defensive coordinator Brian Borland, the freshman All-American corner, Prunty, decides to put his name in the portal. Now, he might stay. He might just be testing the waters. But wherever he lands, and he's getting a lot of attention right now, is certainly going to have quality services from the former number eight over there in Lawrence. Luke McCaffrey, who left Nebraska and committed to Louisville and now is putting himself back in the portal, allegedly because he wants to be given a shot at the starting quarterback. Now, Malik Cunningham is the quarterback that's there and looks to be the starter again this year. And Maybe there was that much belief in him by the coaching staff at Louisville that McCaffrey kind of saw the writing on the wall, and it was implied that they were looking to have McCaffrey's services either as kind of a wildcat package or as a running back, in which I thought he was much better of a runner than he was a passer at Nebraska, and that's where his talents would be best served. But he sees himself as a quarterback still and decides that he wants to give himself a shot to play quarterback and is leaving Louisville to 
see who would like to bring him on as a passer. Another quarterback, Sam Neuer, who really led the Colorado Buffaloes to that resurgence in a very impressive first year under Carl Durrell, a 4-2 and season, which they started off 4-0, they lost to a good Utah team, and then they got drubbed by an athletic Texas team and my number two Heisman guy, B. John Robinson, in the Alamo Bowl. But Neuer puts himself in the transfer portal, and I scratch my head a little bit because really that leaves Colorado with just freshman Brendan Lewis and Tennessee transfer J.T. Shrout. So is one of them having such an impressive go in workouts and in the spring that Neuer doesn't feel that he's got as much of a secure job there and and might want to go elsewhere. So is this maybe good news by subtraction for Colorado fans? Not because you want to see Neuer go. I I, I love the kid. He's a competitor and a fighter, and I love seeing that in a college football player, especially a quarterback. But are things that good in the quarterback room for CU that it kind of forced him to leave? And then finally, wide receiver Jalen Knox leaves Missouri or puts himself in the portal. Now, Knox was their second or third receiver this season under Eli Drinkowitz and quarterback Connor Bazelak, who was freshman of the year in the SEC. So I'm a little surprised to see Knox leave there. Kind of wonder where he's going to go. Certainly a talent, and I think would be a, a very positive addition for any school. And he's a, certainly a Power 5 talent. He's not somebody that was kind of in the shadows and might want to go at a lower tier. I mean, if he decides to go that way, great. But he certainly has the ability to land and and perform at many Power 5 schools in any of those top five conferences. So that kind of ties it up for this podcast, this episode. I do want to give some love to a couple people on Twitter. One is at Joe Broback. Now, Joe released his college football preview, which covers all of college football, but more so and more in-depth on the Group of Five, and in my opinion, is the best Group of Five coverage outside of the Underdog Dynasty, which has established themselves. You can find them on Twitter, at Underdog Dynasty. But again, at Joe Broback, he's also a writer for Underdog Dynasty, so the two kind of go hand in hand. But Joe's a good follow, a lot of good thoughts, and, and take a look at his college football preview, put a lot of work into it, and it's very aesthetically pleasing but also a lot of detailed information. So great job, Joe. Keep up the good work. And also give a follow to at Stats O'War. My guy Parker there does work for Football Outsiders, which is associated with Bill Connolly. And he's put out a couple of graphics, especially with returning production and transfer portal additions and subtractions and kind of how that increases or decreases a team's value. So give him a follow. Give it a look. You can also find it at CFB Graphs or cfb-graphs.com, but also look for Parker on Twitter at StatsOwar. All right, that's going to wrap it up for us on tonight's edition of the CFP Podcast. And folks, we are just 78 days from the start of College Football 21, the official game starting. And if you're like our friend Big Kurt and you don't like countdowns, oh well, we just gave it to you. To me, it's like looking forward to... Christmas. And I know that's cliche, but it truly is. Why? Because college football is a gift. You're so excited on Christmas. And while we're on the subject, I personally think Thanksgiving and that whole Thanksgiving weekend is a much better holiday than Christmas in terms of my enjoyment, but we can hash that out another time. Again, this has been the CFP Podcast. I am Chappie. You can find me on Twitter at champion underscore lit. 
And if you want an updated countdown, if you want my thoughts on all the conferences, Power Five, Group of Five, every single team, thoughts, analyses, data, stats, links, you can get it all if you go to cfpcollegefootball.com and spread the word about the podcast, spread the word about the website, hit me with your thoughts and your questions and we'll read them on air and I will help plug you in whatever cause you want. So again, this has been the CFP Podcast. I'm Chappie and this is what I know.